Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. This is Annie here and Marcus. G'day, Marcus. Morning, morning, Annie. Morning, all the uh, listeners out there this morning. Yeah, yeah, we've got lots of things to talk about, so we're going to go straight ahead. Uh, apparently, they we reported a couple of months ago about uh, the concept of an uh, incinerator to get rid of waste. Well, uh, it's a bad idea, and uh, we've got someone here who is going to be personally affected. Yeah, we're joined on the line this morning by Catherine Lawford uh, from out there in Craigieburn from the No Toxic Incinerator for, for Hume uh, group. Welcome to this morning's program, Catherine. Good morning. How are you all? Good. Very well. So currently a planning application sits with the Hume City Council for a proposed uh, waste to energy plan in Craigieburn and uh, your group is opposing the application. So what are your group's uh, concerns for this uh, site? That's right. Oh, we have a number of concerns in terms of not just the proximity to the residents of the area, being over 50,000 in this area. Um, the site itself is going to be located just the other side of the Hume Highway and even within visible distance of people's homes. Our concerns are that with a, a plant of this size... Uh, which is being that it will burn up to 500,000 tonnes of waste per year, that it could operate uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's going to be emissions um, that will come from that plant um, in various forms, primarily um, from smokestacks and the like that will travel over the area and certainly travel a number of um, kilometres given... Um, winds and other prevailing weather conditions that will have an impact um, on on residents in relation to this plant. We, uh, one of our major concerns is also that for every uh, 100,000 tonnes of waste burnt, 20% of that, or 20,000 tonnes, um, becomes toxic waste. And that waste can take a number of forms, um, particularly uh, sludges and slurries that are are caused by the washing down of the the flues on a regular basis, but also toxic ash. Um, And that is of a a particulate nature in in that it can be very fine. It will travel through the air. Um, And these um, particulate material, often referred to as PM2.5 or PM10, are so small that you can fit 
roughly 30 or 40 of these particles across the width of a human hair. So Very similar when, to what they were talking about when there were the fires down in Hazelwood. The st- it's the stuff you can't see you've got to be worried about. Yes, and most worried about, exactly. Um, so there are a number of our concerns. We also have concerns that there is a parliamentary inquiry going on at the moment into recycling, um, waste management and the like, and we're concerned that um, such a large decision being made by council is happening before the um, results of that inquiry. Um, The legislation that is due to uh, come into place in July 2020 will have a significant impact on how planning applications of this type are assessed. And so uh, I guess our question to Council is why wouldn't you want um, the best interests of your residents taken into heart here and and even delay your decision to um, on on this application until you you are best placed to make such a decision. We've got the impression from people that we've spoken to earlier, uh, in fact, that uh, these incinerators are actually banned in Europe. That's right. There initially was um, quite a widespread use of these incinerators there, but over time it's been found that they create a lot of problems, primarily in the toxic waste creation, as we've just discussed, and and it can't be discounted when 20% of everything you're burning uh, comes out the other end as a toxic product that you have to deal with. And so they are moving away from these plants. We know that there's a um, a plant in Sweden that is uh, dumping um, its toxic waste on an island in Norway. And needless to say, the Norwegians are not entirely happy about that. Um, and there's other issues with where exactly to put this waste and what can be done with it. Given its toxic nature... Um, the reuse of it and, and the application of it in, in other forms such as uh, road base and things like that that have been suggested uh, certainly will have difficulties in that um, you cannot guarantee that the toxic material will not begin to be emitted in, in people's daily lives again. Um, so, so that is why Europe has um, started to move away from these things. And the sorting, Craigie Burn, Catherine, it sits on an area of environmental and both cultural significance. Do you want to explain the concerns about that too? That's right. We understand that there is definitely um, Indigenous um, significance in this area. Um, we believe that the um, Indigenous peoples of this area have a right to object to this plant as well, just the same as any other resident. Um, There's also a number of significant issues in terms of protected flora and fauna. And we know that a lot of us like to live within um, the flora and fauna of our area and not have it be impacted by our daily activities. We know that there's the golden sun moth and the growling grass frog just nearby to this. And there's also the Mary Creek, which runs, which virtually sits at the back of of the property. 
And, you know, living in Australia, most people know that we uh, have to be very strongly connected to our waterways. We don't have a lot of water. And so when a plant such as this comes across a waterway, uh, we have to be very careful as to how we protect it. And not just for us, we need to be able to protect these places for future generations as well. Why does the Hume Council want to do this? Well, they're kind of um, being, uh, they're acting as a a channel, I guess, uh, for the application through uh, legislation that has come down through the state government. And that is legislation that is uh, a particular type of overlay, uh, which is a precinct structure plan. And when that plan is put in place over an urban growth zone, what it means is that um, it removes the third-party rights from the permit application, which means that no advertisement needs to be um, conducted and no community consultation needs to occur. We can only imagine, and I guess your listeners can only imagine, as to why government would want to um, fast-track that kind of thing. Um, But uh, we are kind of sticking our hands up now and saying... We actually think this PSP um, overlay has got some serious problems. And, and at we this stage, uh, the council it. hasn't provided too much information about the nature of the facility and what they're actually going to be um, doing. No, that's right. They, we believe that council is currently um, seeking information from the applicant. Um, and when they have enough uh, information from the applicant to determine... Um, how to make their decision, they will then refer the application to various government bodies, which will include potentially the EPA, maybe Melbourne Water and other significant bodies that will need to make an assessment um, for works approval and a licence for this facility. Yeah, and this um, planning application, the recent announcement, comes on top of the the spate of toxic fires in Hume over the last four years, and this application is yet the latest blue. I mean, what blow, what has been a monthly event fires is now going to be, as you mentioned before, a daily event with toxic uh, chemicals being spewed into the Hume area if if this uh, right. application is, is approved. That's exactly right. And as you would know from um, businesses and residents, Um, down in the area of of, uh, Glass Recovery Services and SKM in in the Hume municipality, um, that when these things go pear-shaped, they go pear-shaped very badly and affect a lot of residents and businesses in the area. Um, I would like to point out that an incinerator of this size, when it collects its feedstock, whatever it may be for use in this plant, is likely to have some form of open pit or um, mass mass area for the collection of, of the feedstock or the product that's going into the incinerator. So this incinerator is likely to be just another problem uh, similar to SKM or GRS. And so we're not making any improvements on past history that you've been talking about um, so that this is, is the first time you guys have actually stood up, isn't it? You, you've uh, actually been quite polite as citizens, and uh, this is the first time a lot of you guys have actually put your hands up, isn't it? 
That's right. We are merely concerned residents. We have no uh, political or, or even business or corporate affiliation with anyone. We are all local residents of the area and have gotten together over this issue because um, quite simply we think it will affect our lives and we have concerns for other, not just residents, but schools, businesses, um, anybody that will be affected by the traffic of having up to 280 trucks per day coming in and out of the area carrying toxic waste. Um, so, yes, we have have not really done this before, but we're finding that if there's ever a reason to stand up and fight for your community and for yourself, now is the time to do it. And we're encouraging other people to do exactly the same because we can't let this slip by. And there's been we a won't. petition the um, group's kicked off? Sorry, say again? Uh, a petition. The group's kicked off a petition in order to yes, get this Yes, that's right. We've started. got a number of actions people can take. So we have got two petitions going at the moment. Um, one petition to Hume City Council, obviously being... Um, the the managers of, of the approval or rejection of this um, application. The other petition we have is to state government, um, which also addresses, uh, I guess, where this legislation is coming from. Um, and we are advertising on our uh, local page, No Toxic Incinerator for Hume, where those petitions are located. We also encourage people, there's a planning alert page, a Hume Council planning alert page, and if you Google 65 Amaru Road planning alerts, you can actually lodge an objection online there, which goes directly to Council. All right, we'll have to leave it there, Catherine. Thank you very much for talking to us today. No problem, absolute pleasure. We would like to say there's a Hume Council meeting on the 9th of December and we encourage everybody to come along along. and you can lodge questions beforehand and have your say. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, echoing 
Yeah, yeah, g'day. We're now in order. We're, we, we were trying to uh, race uh, against and be efficient, and uh, of course we fell on our faces, but never mind. <laughs> but uh, we're talking to you this morning because uh, next week, uh, on the 28th, is the uh, Eureka Dinner, and uh, we'd like you to uh, talk a little bit about what, what's the significance of the uh, Eureka Rebellion and why it's, you know, 165 years later, people are still uh, honouring it. Yeah, thanks, Annie, and um, good morning, Marcus. Good um, The 28th of November is the, um, the day that the, um, <clears throat> the Eureka rebels um, took the oath of allegiance, which was we swear by the Thousand Cross and truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Um, and it's uh, one of the most significant events in Australia's working class history, um, and it still holds the relevance today, 165 years, as you say. Um, from the outside, I think it should be clearly stated that the Eureka Rebellion was class struggle. That was class struggle in Australia, one of the first class struggles, mass, you know, mass class struggles in that sense, and it was collective. And... Um, <clears throat> The demands and the um, vision that the Eureka rebels um, fought over are still as relevant today as they were in 1854. So in 1854, they demanded, uh, the rebels demanded democratic rights, they demanded justice, equality, they demanded um, <coughs> that, um, the, that the taxes that they were paying, the mining taxes they were paying, were unjust and unfair, whilst they rich who were demanding the um, British aristocracy and the squatocracy in Australia um, were not paying any taxes. They were um, given the um, stolen lands of the Aboriginal people, which they were exploiting. So the um, <clears throat> that relevance um, today is that those demands that they had set, for the, set out uh, to achieve have not been met in that 100 Five years. We've had an oh, and also, also, Shirley, you have to say that uh, these people were incredibly brave. Uh, I mean, it's it's the economics of it, but it was tied to the lack of justice, and uh, that is what's going on at the moment. Yeah, well, so we, we do, the parallels are the same. So the the rebels, who many of them were convicts, were deported to Australia for basically crimes. Uh, poverty crimes or political activism. Among them was, were charters who fought for rights and justice for workers in England and the establishment of unions. There were the Irish rebels fighting for independence and there were others who took part in the 1848 revolution in Europe. Yeah. So when you compare that to the situation now where you've got um, some, you know, the class class structure is still the same and the same issues continue. So you've got the Government. I mean, we won the vote. Um, that was a that was a big victory for the um, that came out of the Eureka Rebellion. But who is, continues to control Parliament? Who can? Which class does the do the politicians serve? As they did 18, in 1854. In 1854, it was the British um, colonial authority, the British um, aristocracy and squatocracy. Uh, and, at the moment, and, now, and now we've got big we've business got, and uh, the, uh, the mining council. We've got the mining council who are basically continuing. So as class relations are continuing 
in this day to day, and the and the dispossession of the first people of Australia's first people continued. Um, so the um, the attempts to close down the um, um, the communities, the Aboriginal communities, re- remote communities, that's all part of the big mining council and big ruling class agenda. And that same struggle goes on, surely. The, the rich aren't paying tax, but they're the ones setting the agenda. <laughs> well, exactly. So in that sense, we've got the vote, but the, the, those class relations have remained. Uh, yeah, still... it's a matter of holding the line. You've got some fantastic speakers too. Okay, yeah, so some of our speakers are, one of the key speakers is Clinton Fernandez. Um, Clinton's just written several books about the US-Australia um, alliance, about the fact that um, that there's enormous investment by um, US corporations, which exercise a lot of political influence over our domestic and foreign policies. We've, we've actually got one of his books that will be sold at the at the anniversary event. He's um, an incredibly sharp fellow. He's incredibly he erudite and he's incredibly uh, uh, thorough in his investigations. Well, yeah, he went through the WikiLeaks papers, the leaked papers, with a fine to, to his comb. So all of his arguments are evidence-based, they're based on facts. And um, a lot of it he actually extracted from the, from the WikiLeaks papers. And I, I think that um, his presentation will be really, really interesting. Yeah, really then, interesting. Joan yeah. Coxedge. And Joan Coxedge. Uh, um, many of your listeners would know Joan. She's a long-time political, social justice, democratic rights and anti-war activist. She was one of four women who, in 1966, um, set up the Save Our Sons, which was the, the beginnings of the anti-Vietnam War moratorium and movement, a mass movement. Um, she's got a long history of involvement in, in struggles, in grassroots struggles against war, against um, um, the, uh, the powers of Asia, against Pine Gap, US bases. And also she has a lot to say about the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Um, so well, that'd be in that, interesting. And, and then you've that, also got Dave Kerrin. That's right. So Dave Kerrin will be talking about the, the history and the continuing struggle for workers' rights. And Dave's had a lot of experience over the last 40, 40 years, more than 40 years. Well, that, so, that's, a, that's a great lineup. How do people get a ticket? Okay, so the best way to get the ticket, so that's on Thursday, the 28th of November at 6pm. And the best way, you can either, um, we've got the, the, if you haven't seen the flyer and the details, um, if people on Facebook, they can go to Spirit of Eureka Facebook page, which has all the details posted on it. If you're not on Facebook, you can go to Spirit of Eureka website, just Google Spirit of Eureka, or you can um, phone on 0476 234 232. Um, and you can book through Eventbrite as well. Okay, and so it's going a- to be at uh, the MUA rooms in Island Street, and the doors right. open at 6pm, and dinner yep. is available. Speakers start at 7 Yep, and there'll be vegetarian and vegan food as well. Good on you. You're ahead of the game. Thanks, Shirley. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That was a rush one. Yeah. (laughs) You're listening to 3CR Radio. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today we visit with Josh Cullinan, head of the Retail and Fast Food Workers' Union, to find out about a new class action 
that takes on Domino's Pizza, hoping to claw back lost wages. If you worked for Domino's Pizza between 2013 and 2018, you may be entitled to a whole bunch of unpaid wages and benefits which you didn't receive at the time. The Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, in partnership with law firm Phi Finney MacDonald, is pursuing Domino's through the courts via a class action to recover lost wages. I spoke to Josh Cullinan, head of that union, a few weeks ago about the case. He began by outlining the legal principles involved. So one of the things that we've been investigating for a long time at Domino's was the way that they were employing and paying workers across their network. So Domino's has somewhere around 650 to 700 outlets in Australia. The vast majority, 90%, are run by franchisees. And there are very, very many franchisees. While there's a couple that might have seven or eight or ten stores, there are something like 450 employing entities for those 650 outlets. And those employing entities come and go on a very regular basis. Now, what we were able to identify after a large piece of work was that the company was applying the old SDA agreements that it had with head office for all of their franchisees. And we came to the conclusion that that's not the way the law works. When an employee transfers, say from head office to a new employer, it may be in certain circumstances that the agreement transfers with them. And that's usually a protection for workers because they've got a good agreement and the company can't just avoid that agreement by transferring the workforce to another employer. Unfortunately, at Domino's, what that meant was that they were transferring an inferior agreement, which actually cost workers a lot to that new employer in some circumstances. But for the vast majority of employees that were being employed by employers that weren't ever part of these SDA agreements, we were able to identify that they should have been paid the minimum award. That award since 2014 has had all of the basic conditions that we're used to, so laundry allowances, travel allowances when delivering a pizza, penalty rates on Saturday and on Sunday, penalty rates late in the night. None of those conditions were being given to workers. And Another large one was for delivery drivers, almost 20,000 of them across Australia. None of them were getting a casual loading. And so what we have been able to do is work with a law firm called Fifini McDonald to develop a class action for many of those workers to pursue the wages that they haven't been paid. And that's now been launched. So in June class action was launched. It's led by one of our members. He no longer works at Domino, so he's an ex-member of ours, but Riley's a fantastic young man, um, young dad who lives in the Sunshine Coast. He's the lead applicant, and there's been a website established at dominosclassaction.com.au, and that website, workers who have worked for franchisees between June 2013 and January 2018 are able to register their interest and be kept up to date and eventually participate as claimants in that class action if they're eligible. 
The first case management conference for that was in August. The next case management conference for that is in October. And what we'll see is that that case will roll out over the next few months. There's a lot of lost wages involved. The case is directed at Domino's head office, multi-billion dollar international company who pays its CEO over $30 million a year. And rather than individual franchisees, because many of them have come and gone, uh, many of them are bare bones anyway, and the fact is that it was head office telling them what to pay workers. That case is uh, yet to be heard right through in the courts, but uh, certainly it was great to get that launched, and it's been great to get so many workers involved already. There's already been a couple of thousand people register on the website to be involved. Has Domino's head office sought settlement at all at this point? No, it's in the initial stages at this stage. So it's in the skirmishes of case management conferences and directions hearings. And those first stages still require Domino's to put on a defence and things like that. So we're uh, still a little way off the head office seeing the light and recognising that these workers should be paid what they're owed and their responsibility to do that. At this stage, that hasn't even started. Many of you will remember the 7-Eleven wage theft scandal of 2015. I asked Josh to explain how that case differed from the Domino's case and how the franchisor-franchisee relationship would affect the class action. Well, the difference here was that what we have is the franchisor in Domino's head office directing franchisees how to pay workers. So there were documents that are available online to the workers which stipulated the wage rates that applied in Domino's stores. With the 7-Eleven scenario, it was a little bit different. We see the behaviours in 7-Eleven at Domino's, so payback schemes and visa schemes and all sorts of other things that have been reported on in the media. Those sorts of things are happening both at 7-Eleven and at Domino's. But the difference is, is this is about the actual wage that was paid to workers at the outset and how it related to the award, and that's not where 7-Eleven really went. So 7-Eleven was different to Domino's. In terms of the Domino's case, I'm not aware of a similar action being launched in Australia. There's several class actions underway for other entitlements, notably the casual workers who were not paid annual leave and personal leave and redundancy pay, and companies trying to offset that with casual loading and the federal government assisting them with that. There's some of those class actions, but they, again, are different. This action is being initiated effectively under competition law on the grounds that the franchisor Domino's head office represented to franchisees what they had to pay workers, and then workers suffered from that. And that's where it's been directed to try and resolve. Right, eh? What's the timeline here for the class action at Domino's? I'm not an expert on that. I had hoped it would be fairly quick, but... Uh, with the directions hearing happening in late October and the next stage is probably in February, March of 2020, I expect it's some way off before being resolved. And by that, I mean not just months, you know, many, many months. I'm not across how long these things take. And I guess it does come down to whether Domino's is prepared to ensure that every worker that worked for it, delivering pizzas and making pizzas, is paid the wages they should have been paid. Domino's head office certainly profited. They profited from the franchise fees and everything else that was going on at those times. And they know what these workers were paid and what they should have been paid. So all of their technical arguments fall away when we look at what these workers that were the backbone of their company should have been paid. Well, we might wrap it up, but I'll just get you to perhaps let listeners know 
how best to contact you because they're going to be queuing up to join RAWFW and also how they go about signing up for the Domino's case. Yeah, sure. So workers that have worked at a Domino's franchisee from June 2013 to January 2018, it's not all of these workers will be part of the action, but if you did work, you're very, very likely to be part of that action. You can go online at dominosclassaction.com.au. There's a, a website there. We can search for those terms in Google or wherever your search engine is, and you'll be able to find that class action and register your interest to participate. Uh, workers can find out more about the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union on our website. It's a little bit of a clunky website, but we're looking to rejuvenate it and build a new one in the coming weeks. It's www.rafwu.org.au and RAFWU is R-A-F-F-W-U. So it's the acronym for Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. And you can check us out on Facebook. Again, it's facebook.com forward slash RAFWU. You can get in touch with us just by emailing contact at rafwu.org.au or calling 1300 798 If you do Google RAFWU or the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, you'll often find another organisation that's spending a lot of money on ads advertising our name but giving you a link to another website. So, yeah, just look for the rafwu.org.au or facebook.com forward slash RAFWU. In coming weeks, we'll continue our interview with Josh Cullinan covering Kmart, Coles and Canberra's proposed new industrial laws. We thank Mr Cullinan for his time and expertise. Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well online at any time. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash Beyond the Bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 
And we're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. And uh, we're going to go to a um, speech that was made at uh, the Union Solidarity get-together not so long ago. This is Ken McAlpine. Uh, He was talking about, he gave a bit of a summary of what he thought were the things that... uh, uh, the, the industrial landscape that we're in at the moment. And that was what that whole conference was about, how could uh, uh, Union Solidarity uh, support uh, the general push for uh, justice and fairness in our to industry. find a way forward in this year. Oh, and on that issue, uh, did, did I not predict that uh, the big end of town and their flunky government would uh, start trying to push the notion that uh, our industrial relations landscape is just too complicated for them. It's all just too complicated. <laughs> yeah, that... I did see Morrison, did he, made a comment that oh, it's workers so complicated. were administrative nightmares or something. Yeah, yeah, some it's all bullshit. BS, yeah. In fact, if these people are so incompetent, why are they in the positions of power that they're in if they can't actually do their jobs? <laughs> that is an issue. Uh, before we do go on talking to uh, McAlpine, listen to what Mr McAlpine's got to say. I have to tell you that there's a concert for Chile, Justice, Dignity and Human Rights on tomorrow, Sunday the 24th of November. Special guest direct from Chile, uh, Nano Stern, uh, plus... Local Australian and Latin American artists, 3pm to 8pm at the Federation Square, and it is free. Anybody who's been experienced Latin American music would be there just for the fun of it. Uh, there's also going to be a uh, rally for life on the 28th of uh, November. That's next Thursday, 12pm outside Parliament. Uh, that's all about... Uh, um, in fact... It's it's a rally for, uh, for life, so, but I'll play you the uh, message. On Thursday 28th of November at 12pm, environment groups and communities from across Victoria will peacefully rally together at Parliament to call for urgent action for our natural world. After five years of the Andrews government, nature deserves more, especially in the face of climate change. Victorians need new and better funded national parks, stronger nature laws and better protection for our threatened forests, rivers, beaches, oceans and native plants and animals. We need real action for our natural places and wildlife now. Join in the Nature for Life rally. Bring a sign to highlight the natural places you love that deserve better protection. See you on Parliament Steps, Thursday 28th of November at 12pm. Look for Nature for Life Rally on Facebook and visit Victoria National Parks Association website, vnpa.org.au forward slash rally. VNPA is a 3CR supporter. I think it's really important that people understand the history of how we got here and and I think that is something within the Labor movement that is is one of the additional things that's declined within the Labor movement is, an, is people who actively study history. Um, union density is only a proxy for union power, but it's gone from about 50% to 15% in the last 40 years, which is a catastrophic decline. Um, if you're looking for causes on how we got here you should look at the fact that that's part of an international trend. So that would tend to indicate 
that whatever the factors are, are partly uh, international. Um, and that leads fairly simply into the areas of uh, changes in economy, the global economy and the Australian economy, and look at the decline of the union movement and of union power. Um, we've seen significant changes in product and labour markets over the last 40 years, um, and that's led to, for example, the loss of union bastions, the post office, the railways, huge manufacturing concerns. Um, I think uh, somebody from the AMWU said that uh, by 2025, three quarters of manufacturing workers would work in places with less than 20 employees, which is a complete transformation and makes organising much more difficult the closure of the vehicle industry, the downscaling of the steel industry, all those things have had a big impact. The other thing people don't look at, I think, enough in terms of the uh, decline of the labour movement is Australia, in the whole period of uh, white settlement, Australia has never had such a long period of chronic high unemployment and underemployment, not punctuated by a boom. Booms economic booms, whatever we think about them, tend to improve the power of workers in workplaces because the labour market is tight. The labour market was last tight in Australia in 1973. So um, that's a big change. We've never had such a long period of mass unemployment. The legal changes you know, you can't mix, all these things are mixed up and cause each other, but the legal changes can't be underestimated. The removal of the secondary boycott law, the introduction of secondary boycott laws in 1977, the no extra claims provisions associated with the accord, which meant that unions couldn't really pursue improvements on the job. Um, the, the use of laws which had always been there, the, the tort laws which had always been there uh, but had never been used, um, was a very severe blow to, to the union movement um, and led in turn to the creation of the concept of protected industrial action. And protected industrial action in meant its opposite, which was that most industrial action was now explicitly illegal. Um, and then we've had the mandatory, uh, the first of all, the Workplace Relations Act, the good old Reith Act, which is much better than the Fair Work Act. Um, it brought in the capacity of the Commission to make orders against industrial action. And then in 2005, those orders became mandatory, including in relation to things such as a welfare, the welfare of part of the population, which now means you can't have a train strike. Um, so uh, those things, I think people, maybe people who are under 35, can't remember the days when being a job delegate meant that you went to the boss and said, if you don't fix X or Y, we're going to put on bans, we're going to take a strike action, we're going to hold a stop work meeting. That All that has been taken away from work-level work organisation of unions. Um, and that means, all those changes mean, in my opinion, as Professor John Kelly said from London School of Economics, his view is pretty bleak. He said, 
Most young workers are making a rational decision not to join unions because unions are precluded from being effective. Um, the system of enterprise bargaining also means that the capacity to regulate the labour market at the level of the industry is severely curtailed, and those who try to continue to do that, like the CFMEU, face the full force of the law. The other thing that shouldn't be underestimated is the collapse of legal and quasi-legal union security arrangements. Peets estimates that that's half of the decline in union density over the last 40 years has been as a result of the loss of union security arrangements, meaning if you want to work here, you've got to join the union. Um, so the last thing I want to say, which is probably more controversial, but I do think people need to concentrate on this, it's a very good article in the um, a US journal called Catalyst, which I was just reading the other day by Matt Dimmick, and he talks about the creation of rights not dependent on union power. And at the worst scenario, I don't think it's fair to the ACTU, but you can describe the ACTU as ACOS for workers. Right? And, and many people in this room, including me, have been involved in that process. The creation of the modern awards, the anti-bullying jurisdiction, the unfair dismissal jurisdiction, the anti-discrimination jurisdiction, um, uh, jurisdiction, paid parental leave. All of these things the union movement has lobbied for, but you don't get them because you're in a union. You simply get them because you're a worker. Um, I always counterpose the position of the Swedish unions, which was they were opposed to anti-discrimination laws in relation to employment. They did not think they should be introduced because they said, if you're not in a union, why should you be protected from discrimination? They said, we've got anti-discrimination provisions in our collective agreements. If you're not covered by a collective agreement, who cares? So, now, to an Australian, that is really contrary to the way we think, because we are so dependent on the state to address our issues, not on workers' power. So I just want to distinguish that from the, the point about the legal system. The legal system needs to be fixed, not because I'm obsessed with the legal system, but because we actually need a system where workers can exercise power. Workers' rights should be treated with suspicion. Workers' power should be what we're after through the changes in the legal system. But I should mention that the loss of access to arbitration, uh, although that's not something we've always, on the left, uh, thought was the most important thing, for much of the trade union movement, looking at it objectively, the loss of access to arbitration uh, is also a serious, uh, serious um, weakening of union power. The last thing I want to mention briefly are tactical and strategic errors by the union movement. There was, and there's nothing we can do about it now, but there, when union power was still relative to now fairly strong, there was no resistance early, there was no industrial response to the secondary boycott legislation. Unions were left to try and resist it individually, where, by contrast with the Clary O'Shea dispute, where there was a mass response. 
The second thing was the accord, uh, and that's and that's. Uh, relates to our attachment to the ALP, which is a chronic problem. Having said that, if you're serious about strategy, you have to recognise that a lot of things are going to depend upon changes that the ALP might support. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big problem. Um, and lastly, um, uh, 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 as I said, a political strategy which has been focused on on workers' entitlements, not workers' power. Um, so I think that uh, one of the things that we haven't got is we people haven't even thought of the idea of having a conversation about the movement having an industrial strategy. Uh, it just doesn't occur to anybody that such a thing could exist, let alone that it might be a good idea, let alone what it might be. So I think enterprise bargaining has trapped us into what I call either conservatism or militancy and resistance. And militancy and resistance are part of a solution, but they're not a strategy. They're not a strategy. So I think if the conference comes out with what we need is more militancy and resistance, they've got about one out of five components of what is needed. We need a strategy which is political, industrial, includes industrial action within the existing frameworks, plus civil disobedience. And that needs to be carefully planned at the level of the movement or at the level of at least some of the militant unions and executed over a number of years in an intelligent way. Thank you. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when True Blue Aussie banned a couple of evil China, except in trade when it's good China, but evil China banned a couple of government members from, um, from visiting True Blue Aussie after these evil government members criticised True Blue Aussie's human rights record. As if our humane treatment of no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people on idyllic Pacific Island concentration camps our humane economic interests over our Pacific neighbours sinking into the briny. Along with humane domestic flood, drought, fire, destruction, humane treatment of the tyrannilious people who don't even exist and therefore have no human rights to be abused, as small examples, represent an abuse of human rights, causing righteous anger in our parliament, including cream of Trublawazi youth, life of the party, fun to be with, man in uniform, trained killer, Andrew hasty to war, who, after using Parliament to attack in turn China's human rights record in his job as, quote, politician, then said evil China's decision, quote, is a politically motivated. Amazing how politicians can get so upset about people being political. Other people being political, that is. And Trubler was he plans to ban certain foreign financing of tertiary research. Oh, like the ubiquitous US of the UN of the US of the world merchants of death trained killer machine investing heavily in our universities, our research and curriculum. No, no, not invaluable, important research in projects for peace. No, we more had, say, 
evil China in mind. And the US op has warned Trublawazi that evil China's dominance in increasingly valuable rare metals, rare earth, was a threat to peace. These products vital to the US of merchants of death in their never-ending crusade for peace on earth. And so Trublawazi has taken its orders to unite with the US of to work on that very serious problem. Naturally with government money, and our big supremo Scuttlebem son summed it up, and I hate to indeed, far be it for me to suggest our big supremo got it wrong, but Scuttlebem explained, we don't want to adopt their system, and they don't want to adopt our system. Rubbish, Scuttlebem, rubbish. They're bigger capitalists than we are. On the other hand, I do have to agree with one of Scuttlebem's fellow lovers of the dear baby Jesus, Israel Falal the Lord, who conceded extreme weather conditions are occurring far more regularly. Happening in a rush, he preached. Spot on, Israel. Here's a mate of Scuttlebem who is aware that climate change is such a thing. Although in fairness to Israel, like Scuttlebem and that lot, he knows anthropogenic pollution has nothing to do with it. It's theological, anthropogenic theological pollution that so upsets the dear baby, the wickedness of a population that voted to condone evil, evil homosexuality and non-heterosexual sex in all its theological polluting forms, unnatural evil forms, polluting the dear baby's intention that every sexual encounter should result in a dear little baby created in the image of the dear baby Jesus. Which might explain what they've got against women, because women have the audacity to be born not quite in the image. Evil women wanting to have a bit of a say over what happens to their bodies. Heaven forbid! Well, it does, but they ignore that. And as our regular spokesperson for the dear baby, Senator Erica Betts on the bosses says, Israel's right to his scientifically proven theory that floods and droughts and fire and destruction are down to the wrath of God will be protected by this essential freedom of religion, brackets, Christianity bill. Uh, and of course, protect people's rights not to be attacked in turn by Israel, Eric. Well, certainly not. That would contravene Israel's religious freedom, his God-given right to express his love thy neighbour, dear baby Jesus, religious views. Religion, of course, explains the meaning of life, and although big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs does not believe in the dear baby, nonetheless his Yahweh has revealed the meaning of life to him. Work for the corporate boardrooms and the deserving shareholders till you drop, till we drop. We see the ageing of the population as an opportunity, Josh said, or as our great corporate masters, the US of say, opportunity, make a killing, speaking of work till we drop. We oldies have joined lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions and climate change crap warmest as the great threats to the economy and therefore to life as we know it. As a government committed to freedom of choice, oldies whose budging selfishness threatens our critical budget surplus have the freedom of choice to work and be useful contributors to corporate society or staff. It's their choice. Uh, so they're receiving money raised to provide services you don't plan to spend on services, Josh. Look, put simply, a government surplus is far, far more important than a few starving pensioners. And I believe you wouldn't find anyone who would disagree with that in any boardroom in this great country of equal opportunity. 
matching Israel's incontestable theological science was his partner in evangelical truth, Scuttle them himself, who said it was scientifically incontestable. There was nothing a Trublawazi government could have done to prevent the incendiary fury of the past couple of weeks. And in this case, we have to agree up to a point, because the proof was in the pudding, as Scuttlebem put his science to the test and did nothing, and the incendiary fury exploded. Thankfully, the chainsaw the forest industry has found the solution to Victorian bushfires, as it condemns the state government for giving it only another 11 years to destroy state forests, the industry's God-given right to public assets. Shopping, uh, stopping, sorry, logging would lead to fire, 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 a spokesperson warned. So there's the solution, a bit of sensible lateral thinking. If there's no trees to burn, no trees will burn. Trees are the problem. To prove Israel's science that God is very, very angry, angry God events happening in a rush, a meteorological spokesman told us yesterday Thursday's dreadful statewide weather was a once in a million years or something or other event. And we wouldn't expect such disastrous uh, conditions until, uh, well, a million years or something or other, I hear. Well, no, no, till Monday. Proving Israel's science. Am I sorry I voted for same-sex marriage, especially seeing I don't believe much in marriage anyway. It just increases the cost of the divorce. No, no, that's too cynical. In marriage, divorce, and associated matters like sex, the PR super success, my word, that worked well story of the week, has to go to the giant mind who decided her most, most gracious majesty's son, Anne Screws, should do, it, um, do his um, warts and all interview, which we all know worked a treat. And Screw's sense of right and wrong, honed in the inbred world of the world's largest family of doll bludgers and a string of hangers-on, was highlighted by his knowledge that seducing and abetting underage sex by a gang of older lectures and indiscretion, which despite what many might consider proof, proof to the contrary, and Screw's had nothing to do with. He, he, was, he was, he was not one of the older lectures, he was just there. But on that doll bludge a bit, maybe we're misrepresenting that lot, because by week's end, the that worked a treat led to Ann Screws announcing he would discontinue his, quote, work in the interests of the inbred, which should make a major difference to the world generally, because I have absolutely no idea what, in his case, work is. Oh, my work. I, I prince and mummy queens and daddy dukes. And he sacrificed his work so his family could continue its work, raising the same question. What is their work? In the end, we have to conclude the interview was an indiscretion. Sometimes it's best to just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> but with US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor under fire for making Ukraine an offer it couldn't refuse, Zion big supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo for alleged corruption involving our very own crook casino King Jamie Puker, Benjamin's next door neighbour and close, close, close friend, Jamie himself over a few problems down at the casino and screws in a bit of strife, the worst 
Westpac Bank sprung for a few million money laundering problems, including child pornography and its supremo Brian Hercher feeling the heat, as if a five million plus salary means he should be held responsible for that for which he is responsible. How unjust. Anyway, with all that, we can understand why the government knows the most urgent legislation to address gross evil and criminality is the smash the evil unions and evil workers bill. That's real criminality. The others are just doing their job. Or in Anne Screw's case, his work. Good to know there is international solidarity in matters that matter. Take this opposition rally in Zimbabwe to hear the opposition leader where the sorry, the police attacked those attending the rally violently because like protest here, holding an opposition rally is now illegal, although they claimed it wasn't illegal. But they were forced to attack it with intense violence because they were afraid it could, wait for it, turn violent. That's what they said. No embellishment. Well, it certainly did. So finally, isn't it encouraging to know in an evil, sinful world suffering the wrath of God, some things are constant. The forces of law and order, those who protect the means of production, are the same the world over. It's comforting, isn't it? Good morning. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. And you're back with Annie and Marcus on 3CR, on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got the wonderful Noah Pazil on the phone. G'day, Noah, how are you? Thank you, Annie. That's a, that's a great introduction. Isn't it? <laughs> I love that. I just uh, love that. I hope I've earned, I'll earn it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about the quiet Australians that uh, our uh, fearless leader, Morrison, wants us all to pretend are the real Australians. It's an interesting concept. I came across it a few weeks ago, again, in an article, um, and it was a piece that sort of um, suggested that, that most people, like many people, and they interviewed four or five, but they also did a survey of this piece, um, that people are really happy being identified as quiet Australians. And I was just thinking about how that concept's been constructed over time as the hard-working, head down, uh, do their thing, and connecting it to sort of all the different um, sort of um, attempts to produce the um, sort of the, the docile population in Australia that sort of just go along with things, even if they're unhappy with it. We had lifters and leaders um, with... Um, Joe Hockey about five years ago. Yeah, yeah, I don't that's know if right. Remember that phrase? Yeah. And then we had um, John Howard's aspirational Australians and the Battlers, and the Battlers. So we've had this long history of it, and it sort of seems like it's settled nicely into a, for, for conservatives into this group of people who see themselves as God fearing, um, democrat, democratic, taxpayers. Responsible 
family people, and that's now. I think it's sort of almost in, sort of solidified into what is um, a true Australian. Yeah, yeah, it's a sort of like clarified fat. But, uh, yeah. you know, the thing that gets me is that I see it as evil-minded public relations tactics. And yeah. as I heard on something quite recently, isn't public relations just formalised lying? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I guess the interesting part of it for me is how it's sort of um, celebrating docility. Yeah, I know. The population. You know, like all the others prior to that had sort of shaped Australians as... And Australians have always had this... I mean, you know, if you go back to the Anzac myth, um, mythology, what was what was notable about the Australian um, identity in that whole construction of that myth was the Australians were anti-establishment. They weren't quiet. They weren't docile. They weren't people who put up with, you know, the sort of English aristocratic privilege. They were people who rebelled against it. That and was what made the Anzac myth so strong in Australia in one way. We were anti-establishment. And earlier in the show, Noah, we spoke about the Eureka Rebellion that was occurring this time 165 years ago. Again, that same struggle of uh, fighting back against uh, uh, corrupt administration. Absolutely. And if we think about, the, the so again, the sort of um, hero, the heroic um, identity that we've given to Ned Kelly... Yep. In Australia, you know, he, he was someone who um, took up arms against, um, you know, sort of uh, um, an oppressive uh, local administration. But interestingly you know, enough, with the Ned Kelly myth, because it's uh, uh, it's held strong, I know. And um, but there was a little while ago, a couple of years ago, I noticed uh, there was a backlash from the mainstream media around uh, promoting him as a criminal. Uh, which was completely against the feeling that was held in the heart of uh, the Australian consciousness. And then the thing that really interested me around it was that a whole lot of hipsters, start all that beard and hairdo that hipsters Mm -hmm. have, that's Ned Kelly, and they don't even sometimes know it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it is is an iconic image in in Australian folklore and in the way that we... You know, Ned Kelly occupies a really central place. But I, I, I agree. I think there has been a move in the last couple of decades to take away some of that from his mythology, to, to question the, the mythology somewhat. Um, and probably because they have been producing this idea of the docile Australian for a while. And it's just sort of, for me, it's, uh, it's sort of slipped under the radar. I didn't really... I didn't really get it until I read that piece, but I think there has been a campaign over a period of time to produce Australians who just, well, yeah, we don't agree with it, but we'll accept it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's what good people do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's like a a formalising of a criminal, uh, you know, the convict past or something. Yeah, yeah. And I think also, I mean, I think technology and the way that, and, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, technological determinist. I don't believe technology determines what we do, but I think it's, it does aid particular types of uh, power relations. And the one at the moment is to sort of anaesthetise the majority of people into being politically docile. So, you know, the, the sort of constant stream of entertainment, people on their headphones all the time, and the sort of um, way that we've been atomised by mobile phones and... and you know, people don't really interact very much in public anymore. Um, 
they're, they're so... In fact, they, um, they're a bit frightened if you talk to them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think, you know, partly, you know, you think about it, we've had decades of the surveillance society, you know, the, the securitization society, that is, crime and um, criminals are around every corner. Then we've got the terrorist threat um, constantly being thrown at us. We have the technology that enables people to escape um, constantly. And we've got this uh, discourse around good people just put their head down and work and don't really get involved in politics. Mm. If we have a look at Ned Kelly, uh, Noah, I mean, that's a story that people should know. The true story is not told about Ned revealing the corruption in the state of Victoria through the uh, Geraldery letter and also a story not well known that Ned uh, was a, he fought back against violence against women. Absolutely, yes. You're ab- absolutely right, Mark. Ha- have I you mean, read uh, the Geraldery letter? It is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I did read, um, I'm just trying to think of the name of the author that wrote the Kelly book a couple of decades ago. Uh, um, uh, Carey, Peter Carey. Peter Carey, I mean, that is such a wonderful text. Um, I, I, it, you know, we don't, we don't live in a lit... I have to say, we live in the probably the least literate era of the last few hundred years. That is, people have learned to read, but they're not. No, I know. Uh, it's like they all yeah. went to cram school. Um, uh, that's so, interesting because uh, we were talking off air before we started talking about the quiet Australian uh, construction uh, that uh, the evil little uh, Howard created, the battler. Uh, yeah. You remember talking about literary background, uh, Kylie Tennant, uh, communist uh, Australian author, wrote a fantastic yeah. book called The Battler. And if no, people haven't read her work, they should go back. And okay, uh, I haven't read it. So, yeah, yeah. Um... Well, it's called The Battler and it's, it, uh, it's set in the Depression and uh, the people, she's a great writer, but uh, the yeah. story is around characters and they're in a, 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 basically a little caravan, a group of people who live together right, uh, to fend off uh, poverty. And uh, what uh, did uh, Howard do? He, he took the word battler and, ma- and made it into dis- the description of people who had overextended themselves uh, doing renovations. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting phenomenon. There was, an in- there was a book published recently by one of the um, staff of the Institute for Public Affairs, um, I can't help Which, myself. I have to go. Yeah. One of the, the argument is that Australia has been divided not around class or um, um, ide- ethnic identity or anything else. The, the real cleavage in Australia is between uh, inner city intellectuals and the rest of Australia, the, you know, a hard working class, true Aussies. Oh. And, you know, there's a lot of, I, mean, I haven't read the book, but I've read a few reviews of it, and I actually will get it and have a read of it. Um, because I think that he, there is something to this notion. Now, it's not a natural cleavage. I think his argument is that this is a cleavage, um, you know, um, as a result of the, um, the divide in values between good Aussies and people who have lost touch with... Uh, what it is to be Australian. Well, you know what I think, Noah? Having lived in the bush for about nine years, I yeah. think this is a redressing of a mannequin uh, because uh, 
and it's a furphy in a sense because, uh, and it's part of their uh, cleverness in this promotional activity because uh, immediately, if you live in a, a place like that, you will immediately uh, all the resentments will re- will surface because. Yeah. Uh, there is an, a really marked difference between the experiences of people who live in that environment and people who live in the city. And people oh, in the city have absolutely no idea what it's like to live in these different places. And so, of course, they'll go, you, they'll just get angry and, you know, they'll, they'll ag- agree with all the terrible things this person's implying. And also you'll find that out in the country areas and stuff, the power yeah. relations between the in- inordinate amount of power that is uh, coalescing around um, pastoralists that still yeah. remain as part of the hierarchy out in these places. And also the uh, it, 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 it's stark. Absolutely stark. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I don't think this uh, particular argument... Um, well, uh, there are two aspects to the argument. One is that, you know, to say that's not class-based really, um, uh, you know, sort of... Yeah, it's a lie. ...entirely the different life experiences of people who live in the um, who live in the inner city and the people who don't. Now, it may not... Uh, uh, you know, if we're using class just to talk about wealth, um, it, then it's then it, it's probably too crude an understanding to really get to the grasp of. There are many people living in the inner cities of Sydney who have chosen chosen this wrong, who who have a particular way of living, yeah, um, which is largely hand to mouth uh, through the week. You know, yeah. the people who work in service or in a whole range of other um, casualised um, industries who are. Probably statistically, uh, you know, not um, not not middle or upper class, but live a particular way that that separates them from people who are in other parts of Australia who aren't able to access the same infrastructure or lifestyles or um, technology or a whole range of other things that have divided people. Yeah, so there yeah. is a difference there. But the other thing is that these people, whether it be the IPA or the Murdoch Press or the Scott Morrison government, they're not describing events. They're, they're producing them. Yeah, that's exactly what... Yeah. That's exactly... You know, I agree. Yeah. That's exactly what... Yeah. And, and they've been trying to work out... You know, in the... Uh, not, before they had the Gulf War, I can remember going... Oh, they've uh, got rid of the Cold War idea, so now they're going to have to attack someone. Uh, yeah. Are they going to attack China or are they going to ch- attack the Middle East? I was just doing an intellectual uh, yeah, yeah. same myself. Oh, no, they're scared of China and anyway, they're economically tied. So it will have yeah. to be the Middle East. So that's exactly what they did. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. And um, then then uh, it's it, you can work out. it's You can work out what they're going to do. But I was waiting for them to decide that they were going to create the schism between young and old. But of course, they themselves are old. Yes, yes, but that doesn't stop them. Because so, so the first thing is not only I mean not not only do can we predict what they're going to do or, or have some idea of it, they tell us. Yeah. Samuel Huntington in 1993, when he wrote the Question of Civilizations, the article, not the book, that followed in '96. In '93, he said, "Look, it's hard to know who the next enemy of the of the U.S. and its allies will be." 
it's likely going to either be Muslims mm. or uh, because, well, you know, all China... Oh, see, see, he had the same idea. Mm. Yeah, he, he, he... Well, again, <coughs> I don't think this... You know, my, my view is these people aren't describing the world. They're creating it. They're constructing yeah, it. They are. You know, yeah, and, you know, he's a... Samuel Huntington, for those people who don't know, um, he was a member of the inner circle of the... Um, of U.S. government and military sort of infrastructure, or what do you want to call it, elite. I mean, he, he was a Harvard professor who spent a lot of time inside and outside of uh, the halls of power. So, um, you know, these people don't, when they produce this stuff or when they write this stuff or they articulate it, they're actually telling us what their, um, you know, sort of uh, aims are, what their goals are. And so when Morrison says quiet Australians, in that moment, he might be describing something that they think is a way of um, producing a particular outcome for themselves. I mean, people now are talking about being quiet Australians. That's not a natural... As we talked about, it's not natural for Australians to be quiet. I mean, we had, in the 1960s, a huge amount of upheaval around a whole range of issues. And, you know, Australian history is replete with... Um, People taking to the streets to 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 make a stand. I mean, I was like many people. I was um, involved in protests against the Iraq War in the early 2000s. I was involved in protests against the introduction of HEX in the late 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, the, quite Australians is something that they're that they're trying to create. Because how better do you stay in power if you say that anyone who's opposed to us on the streets are uh, rat bags and un-Australian. Um, it's obviously the outcome he wants, is it? Um, his latest attempts, his mission to smash the union movement, obviously the court Australians. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, the union movement is built right back. I mean, in you know, when we talk about the the, the sort of hypocrisy, the, the um, way the language is used and history is used to, um, to recreate people's perceptions is incredible. I mean, the union movement, from the, in the 1950s, was one of the biggest um, uh, sort of impulses towards democratisation in most Western countries in the world. Yeah, well, that I mean, says that, something, doesn't it? It says something well, that the, the the people who are trying to crush the union movement are not the the uh, people that you should be running towards. Well, they're the people who claim that they are the protectors of democracy. I mean, in the same sentence where they talk about crushing the unions or the um, you know, the sort of anti-Australian or uh, dangers of the unions, they will tell us how um, they, they are the same people who protect democracy and freedom. Um, you know, we've had it with the extension, Extinction Rebellion um, um, protests over the last few months. I mean, you know, this, was, this is a, a, a enshrined in democratic practice is, or in democratic um, um, Ideals is the idea that people have the right to go out and um, non-violently take a stand against something they take a stand against something they oppose or take a stand for something they believe. Well, that's really, yeah. you, you brought into uh, my memory, and I, I don't know why I didn't do that. I went, actually went outside the courts uh, on uh, Monday, and because uh, uh, that's where the IMAP people and the and they'd thrown them together, the IMAP people and the uh, Extinction Rebellion people, yeah. who stopped uh, traffic on Elizabeth Street, um, and 
together at Magistrates Court, and I was trying to. I asked them, uh, "What were you uh, charged with?" and uh, they were charged with uh, obstructing the traffic, uh, stopping people from going from A to B, effectively. <laughs> mm. So, uh, what's that? A is that a traffic offence? I don't know. Well, they have I mean, to. It have to have to be a misdemeanor or something. But you know, the this is the thing that I find really interesting about the quiet Australians is that in the interviews, these are people who said that they believed climate change was an existential threat. They didn't use that language, but they were talking about how concerned they were about climate change and the future of climate change. But they believed that the best way to deal with it was to go to the polls every three years and vote <laughs> for a government. They, didn't, they did, and they voted for a government that doesn't believe in it. So I mean, it was interesting how they, they're not even aware, I think, of how ineffectual their, their electoral vote is at the moment. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting... I've got to say, I, I'm fascinated by the way that conservatives are trying to now um, undermine protest and undermine the sort of uh, potential for anti-capitalist and anti-establishment um, sentiment by creating this notion of a docile Australian. I mean... Oh, you, you're, you're putting what, a new meaning to lambs to slaughter. <laughs> yes, well... <laughs> I mean, not new uh, necessarily. Um, There is a contemporary element to it. So, yeah, but it does go to... The other thing I guess it really um, highlighted to me again is how powerful these forces are. Yeah, that's right. These ideological institutions um, in shaping the way that Australians think about themselves and how quickly it can happen. Well, Marcus, now, Marcus was just uh, yeah. Well, how quickly it can happen. Marcus yeah. was just pointing out that uh, a friend of his who's in casual work and is uh, very upset about everything, and she she thinks it's her fault. Right, and, and I mean, this is the same. This is an example of it. And the other thing he was saying was that, uh, interestingly enough, someone like. Uh, Ian Chappell was being interviewed by Julia Samira, and he actually holds all these views around uh, human rights and uh, refugees. refugees and yep. a whole range of things like that. But we were just discussing the fact that he's a sports star, but we don't see that on TV. No, we see no. the controversial negative views from people like Israel Folau and Margaret Court, not yeah, the humane yeah. views like Ian Chappell, yeah. Well, Ian Chappell was instrumental in having the first uh, the Indigenous cricket team that went to England in 1865 before the first tour of Australia, the official first tour of Australia, um, he was instrumental. He fought, I, I think, for over a decade against the or, or for the rights of those people, those Indigenous Australians, to be named as Australian Test players. Yeah, well, there and you the go. First test players. I mean, he, he, I, yeah, it is. It is interesting. You're absolutely right. Um, um, there are lots of voices in Australia people who have profile who seem not to get any airtime. Um, their, their views don't seem to get any airtime at all. I mean, the story, one, of the story, one of the things that really fascinates me, I guess, and I've got no explanation for it, is and while, so this is great, uh, I believe it's an amazing story. Bill Shorten's involvement in securing um, equal pay for Australian netballers. Yep. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you know the story. Go on, tell us. 
No, well, I don't know the entire story, but um, someone I know has just interviewed um, Liz Ellis uh, for a, um, um, a, a sort of a Hall of Women's Hall of Fame project. Yep. Um, in sport, and she, you know, the, the feedback was that you know Bill Shorten's involvement in this um, uh, a campaign to get netballers a whole range of rights um, and pay and and um, and pay rights was an amazing job. You know, it took years, fought uh, tirelessly for it, and you know it was part of his conviction around social justice. And she couldn't speak more highly of it. Mm, I don't understand why Labor did not make. Yeah, you know, that seems to me if you're talking about what Australians value. Yeah, it's that interesting. So they're incompetent in uh, what we've got is two two uh, promotional activity machines and one is incompetent and one of them is uh, superior but uh, has no heart. They're like a, they're like a zombie uh, fascist group that just want to undo everybody. Yeah, well, they've got, I mean, they've got a clear aim and that aim is to um, pre- 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 prevent any form of progressive change and to wind back any that occurs. I mean, and and you, know, you were saying before that you, you're surprised, oh, we've got hardly any time, but we'll go back to that thing about very quickly. It happens very yeah. quickly. Well, so, I mean, you know, the, the idea of the Quiet Australian was only really um, articulated around the time of the election. I, yeah. I think the first time I really heard it was on the night of the, when Scott Morrison gave his election speech. But within a six-month period, seven-month seven period, it's been a, a term that people are actually adopting to describe themselves. And I oh, think what that's nutbags. Really, yeah, and I think there is something to, you know, the power of that sort of propaganda machine or ideological machine is is really interesting and also the willingness of people to accept and it, it didn't happen when i say quickly it's got a long history no no it's a current yeah, it's but, an undercurrent yeah. in the river yeah yeah i mean the, the sort of the, the values on which it's based have been around for a long time and they've been permeating in that um, um but and and they've been really pushed by that particular um, oh, it's part of that thing about don't be so emotional Yes, yeah, so, well, don't be intellectual. I guess yeah, 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 yeah. Don't be so. You know, don't be so. Don't be so. <laughs> yeah, and they're both. You know, emotion is a, a feminine characteristic, and yeah. it's been demonised for hundreds of years. So, the minute you attach emotion to anything, um, you immediately discredit it. Yeah. Um, in fact, emotions are the most important thing that humans have. So, yeah, you know, we, that's uh, surprising. But, just, but I mean, I guess this also goes back. I guess, to this sort of hypothesis I have that I've been working on, that neoliberalism is as much about the production of a particular type of um, ideological um, system, not so much only for economic, to, to cement economic privileges. I mean, that's part of it. But largely to cement the social privileges that have long... Um, sort of uh, being the foundation of Western society, uh, patriarchy, uh, heterosexuality, or heteronormativity, whiteness. So I think, in many ways, when we talk about neoliberalism as just an economic project, when neglecting the extent that it really is about the production of a particular type of identity, 
that um, sustains the sort of gender, sexual, ethnic or racial privileges on which the Western system is built. And I think for me now, that's really my hypothesis moving forward in understanding how neoliberalism works. Well, we have to finish. That's why the quiet Australians... Oh, go on. really interesting. That's why the idea of the quiet Australians is interesting to me because it's part, I think, of that um, cultural element of uh, neoliberalism. Mm. Thanks for talking to us today, Noah. Thanks, Noah. My pleasure. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, fascinating. We have to go. Uh, we've got hardly any time. And he's uh, completely right. Uh, the, the People should fight back. It's part of the language stuff. People have to fight back and be their own people. Uh, and uh, and things will be a, a lot easier for themselves. Uh, we've had an interesting program. We've talked about incinerators out, out in Craigieburn. Craigieburn, yep. Yeah, outrageous stuff. We've uh, listened. Oh, we heard a bit about the Eureka Dinner coming up, 28th of uh November, next Thursday, uh, out at the MUA uh, office, uh, rooms uh, in Ireland Street, West Melbourne, uh, 6 o'clock. Um, dinner at 7. Uh, there's, uh, we also heard from Over the Wall. Uh, we uh, went on to uh, hear from Ken McAlpine, who uh, had some very interesting things to say about the history and why we're in the situation we're in at the moment. This is the week that was, which was a gas, and then we talked to Noah. We had a good time. Yeah, it's been a been a packed show. Yeah, so we're going to go out with a really nice piece of music. It's got not because we're in Sydney, but it is a very nice piece of music. It's called Sydney After Dark, and it's by Melanie Horsnell. And I heard it, and I thought, ah, oh, this is really lovely. Pretty lights and shiny things you think you're depressed But it's probably just too much coffee in your tea Too much caffeine in your dreams Cars will drive too mad and fast up and down King Street They don't understand where I'm coming from It's a 50k zone but they're taking over me Flash my lights but they got no control no control No control Pretty lights and shiny things And Sydney's such a pretty thing I'm waiting for the lights to change I'm thinking I should move away the cars will drive too mad and fast Up and down King Street Better understand where I'm coming from they all got their dates and petrol station meetings Clandestine and naked under fluoros And who knows? Who knows? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.